0: Claire. Hi, Anar. How are you doing? I'm feeling like a wild animal, and it's in part because I had so much coffee this morning (laughs) to prepare for this podcast, but I'm also really inspired by our themes and subjects and the books that we've brought for the podcast today. How are you feeling?
1: Also a little bit like a wild animal. Very inspired. You know, this is one of my favorite things to talk about in one capacity or another. I think it's something we end up talking about a lot together in the office. So I'm really excited we found a way to take a really molten lava kind of subject matter and turn it into hopefully a coherent topic, um, which we're calling Poetry
0: and the Primal. Is that right? Is that what we're going with? Yeah, that feels right. So this episode is going to be just a little bit more intimate in terms of getting to know us as editors, as well as writers and just like wild people. Um, (laughs) I'm pretty excited about that. It's a little bit vulnerable, but as we're going to learn today, great poetry is a little bit unhinged, open, vulnerable. And yeah, we're going to learn that in exploring primalness within ourselves and in literature, um, there's a lot of truth that kind of surfaces, which yeah. can be really fun to explore.
1: Yeah, I think there's there's almost a cliche here that I'll just go ahead and name right off the bat, which is that, you know, we're Americans living in the year 2023. <laughs> we're on our computers and phones all the time. It's pretty real, I think, for a lot of people to want to, quote unquote, get back to nature, get back to the primal instincts and desires and the animal self and and really reconnect with like what our spirit is made out of in the first place, because we know that it it's not this kind of online world or this detached, capitalistic uh, way in which we kind of have to live in order to function. Um, and so I know that this could be Scene maybe is a little bit cliche because it's definitely something that I think people talk about to varying degrees in a lot of different spaces. But this idea of poetry and the primal and the sort of animal self within the poem and the instinct to write poems in the first place feels decidedly different.
0: Yeah. You know, I I think about childhood. Yeah. Yeah. As you do (laughs) when I think about primal. (laughs) And I also think about yeah, like there's this uninformedness to that first state of being primal Mm -hmm. when you're a child and it's just desire, it's just want, it's just hunger. Um, And there's something really, really beautiful about the child self and exploring that in writing, but also just like you know, as we learn more things and become citizens of the world, and read and become inspired, there's room for hindrance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's room for doubt. There's room for insecurity to creep in. And you know, I think a lot of a lot of writers might totally relate to the idea of imposter syndrome or writer's block. And I feel like thinking about the primal writing self, you're trying to do away with that. You're trying to bust through that wall Mm that keeps you from like saying what it is that you want to say. Yeah. There's just so much there.
1: Yeah. And I think going back to childhood, how we are so connected to our primal selves as children. And I think it's directly related to the fact that we don't know anything. And so every single day is full of exploring unknowns to varying degrees of elation or fear uh it's all a mixed bag but it's definitely a space in which we don't really know yeah <laughs> we don't know ourselves we don't know our own minds and so i think trying to channel that almost childlike um state of you know the brain not assuming that it knows everything already or how the world works or how the self works is a really wonderful practice to at least attempt as a poet. I love that. Well, Anar, should we talk about Dean's book?
0: Yeah. So after work one day, Claire and I went to just have the happy hour debrief, talk about writing projects and drink some really good wine and have some really great cheeses at Wine for the People here in Austin. In celebrating literature and writing our authors and each other's, Mm -hmm. I expressed a lot of insecurity and doubt around my own writing practice and how I pull back. And it could be that like I'm a Woman in America that was born into immigrant parents and was raised in poverty, that I never want to like bite the apple. You Mm -hmm. know, I'm always admiring the apple through a glass. Like, I feel so far away from the things that I want to express and the person that I am because I have to be polite and I have to cross my legs and I have to like be a, a lady. Yeah. As an act of self-preservation.
1: Yeah. It's totally understandable how that perspective on yourself and the world around you comes about. Yeah. Sadly.
0: And in therapy, I have explored that there are versions of myself and I think many people that you are in order to survive and that that can get you very far. Mm -hmm. And then once you're in this like safe space, can unravel unfold and blossom and become your truest and most authentic self. But I have had like a lot of doubt and a lot of insecurity in exploring um, my own themes and my own ideas. And I felt this kind of animal wanting to come forward and when I would see it in other people like in Claire's work or in Clarice Lispector's work and in Joe's spirit, mm-hmm. I'd be like, oh my God, I love just like how wild and full of energy and fire, um, you know, all three, Clarice, Joe and Claire being Sagittarius. So maybe I just love Sagittarius <laughs> people, but.
1: Well, we love you too. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but there is this like, lack of inhibition that I could see in others, and I loved. And at some point in all of this admiration, recently Claire recommended to me The Art of Recklessness by Dean Young, and it hit.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's a good word for (laughs) it. Yeah, I mean, I (laughs) listening to you talk about some of your, you know, personal struggle around writing and And a lot of other things, too, because our writing lives are reflective, I think, of ourselves and, and the internal struggles we have with other parts of our lives, of course. I thought, you know, a good dose of recklessness was in order and it's easier said than done. We don't live in a perfect world where we can feel safe taking risks in our lived lives. I definitely am actually a really scared person in my lived life but on the page is a place where I think every single one of us regardless of where we come from or what we're vulnerable to are able if we can access it and it's a good place to practice accessing that kind of recklessness and that kind of risk taking and fearlessness and you know poetry is poetry and the world is the world but I guess my hope is that for both of us that risk taking on the page can maybe seep a little bit in to ourselves and our, and our lives and, and empower us a little bit. But yeah, Dean's book, The Art of Recklessness, rest in peace, Dean Young, but he always used to joke around about how that was by far his most popular book and that no one really wanted to read his poems anymore. And while that's a little sad, that's just his sense of humor. It was very funny. And he he's not wrong. A lot of people do really love and connect with this book and a lot of the ideas in this book, which feel very original to him. Um, and boy, he was a reckless person <laughs> on and off the page. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so what a teacher. What a great teacher.
0: And there's so much that reading The Art of Recklessness illuminated for me about what it is that I love about not only what I enjoy reading on my own time, but who we like to publish and why. Mm -hmm. And, you know, now that we have 10, almost 11 chapbooks that we've published through Host Publications Chapbook Prize series, um, we've been hearing some really great feedback from the people around us about how all of the books are wildly different but there is a thread Mm -hmm. all of our poets could not be more different from one another writing style the themes like there is so much variety in the collection but I would and I Claire I think you would agree that there is this sense of raw urgency that runs through each poet and you know maybe they wouldn't describe it as a primal energy but it is to me, like the product of what you might get from tapping into that primal energy.
1: Yes, I definitely agree. I think that that sense of urgency, urgency is the word we've been putting to this really molten concept, but it's true. Our writers couldn't be more different from one another. And yet they all feel as if they were connected to a kind of hunger is is another way I like to think about it. So thinking about being pretty hungry and having this beautiful, juicy piece of fruit right in front of you, maybe coming back to your apple idea, but let's make it a sexier fruit Um let's say it's like a plum and you're just so hungry and it's the perfect ripeness and it's so juicy. And that moment right before you sink your teeth into it and just let the juice run down your face to think of that urge and then translate it to writing a poem. And like, that's the feeling of desire in the poet as they write, even if they're writing in a sonnet form about grief, I think you can still sense into that kind of hunger or that that really primal desire. Um and that's where that urgency feels like it comes from to me in our poets.
0: Beautifully said, Claire. Um okay so we have an idea now of maybe what primal looks like and feels like on the page, maybe on in the body as well. How do you think a writer can access that energy when they sit down with the page? Yeah.
1: Well, this is why I recommended Dean's book to you, Anar. The Art of Recklessness, If Nothing Else, it's a manual on how to access that. And a lot of even floating theory about why to access that and i think the how is also in the why Mm. so for example dean really talks a lot about how you really cannot hurt the world by creating poetry there's no way in which the creation of a poem can hurt the world obviously content in the poem is a whole other matter but you wondering Am I allowed to um, be my most authentic self on the page and being hindered by those doubts is something that I think he really unlocks at the very beginning and has helped me to see that I have a grand permission to Mm. explore things I don't know about and that writing the poem requires us to access our imagination And accessing one's imagination is a creation of empathy because the more you can imagine another person's life, the more empathy you're able to feel. So I feel like permission is step one and it's a practice. You have to show up to the page. You have to play. You have to disallow any doubt to stop you from creating the poem that you want to create. Um, That sounds like a terrible answer, actually. (laughs) What do you think?
0: No, that's a that's a great start. So much of of my own hindrance has been that I felt or have felt, you know, I, I I'm trying not to introduce myself as a feral writer to people because I feel like I'm not saying it in a loving way mm-hmm. when I say it like that. Mm-hmm. My literary education, despite going to college, came from Melvern Books, which had the biggest poetry collection I've ever seen in a store. It celebrated small presses, had a massive poetry and translation section. Um, but I didn't have, you know, an MFA program and, and friends that loved poetry and people reading my work or professors to tell me maybe what I was reading. Um, I would just have Sometimes introductions written by translators to provide context. So there was this like non traditional approach to poetry that I felt kind of embarrassed about. And I also, at some point, built up this like, I didn't give myself permission to play with the people that I admired who were a bit more you know trained as a wild word to say with the word poetry but yeah but you know the MFA program has been a huge product of creating space for poets to really embrace language and poetry and the ideas and the movements of poetry and yeah we all build these narratives up in our minds right that, that we don't belong i think that that is always Something that we reach for is confirming that we're not supposed to be here and who do we think we are and that we gotta get out of here. Um, we're always striving for community and acceptance as just like animals, <laughs> as human animals. But but I love the idea of like the art of recklessness begins with giving yourself permission to imagine and to write yes. and to explore. And that it just begins there.
1: Yes. And to not know, I think that's really, really important. Yeah. And if you are not only comfortable with not knowing things, but are actually trying to access that frame of mind, like I said earlier, that childlike place where you can only discover because you don't already know things, not to say it isn't really fun to learn a ton about history and poetry but if you're trying to access the unknown then not knowing is no longer a problem and I think it's also important to understand that no matter how well trained people are they don't know a lot of things and that's cool too (laughs) knowing is great but then you have to find the next new cave of sensation and language and play and experience that you haven't encountered before. So I think it's empowering to to think of not knowing as um, as a positive thing.
0: Yeah, it was almost like I didn't have the audacity to like run with people that I admired or I don't know, you know, I'm not well. (laughs) Um, I think that that the instinct of shutting oneself out Like for me, that is pretty innate and I'm working very hard to dismantle that. Mm -hmm. But I also, the more open I am about that insecurity, the more I learn that I'm not the only person that allows that to hold them back. Mm -hmm. It's true. But, But the art of recklessness, not only is it like, let's sit down and write and you know, I texted you the other day, a quote in The Art of Recklessness. You know, I'm going to butcher it here, but about how writing is isn't hard. It's writing badly that is hard, which you have to write badly to become a good writer. Yeah. And that can take your entire life, maybe. Um, yeah. But <laughs> the more that you sit down and and push through it and try, the easier it will will become mm-hmm. and the better you'll inevitably get at, at writing. Um, it's very true.
1: And if we're always held back by feeling like we're not good writers, it's a catch-22 where then you're not writing and you're not getting better. <laughs> so that's a trap. Uh, let us all be aware of that trap and not fall into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that the idea that play should be a big part of it, play being Intrinsically connected to the imagination and to this kind of permission not to know or to explore, however, you want to say that, it can all be distilled down to play, um, which is a form of enjoyment. And that doesn't mean that everything you are playing with in your poetry is like happy, happy. (laughs) None of this, by the way, speaks to the content of poems. Um, It's more about the mentality of the poet as they approach. making of the poem and kind of returning to that first, the first impulse to make a poem that you ever had and that there's a big connection there. So Anar, I have a question for you.
0: (laughs) I was going to ask you this question first, but (laughs) no, I, I I was seeing what you were building up to. Oh, and then you got me. Were you going to ask me what I was going to ask you, which was... Tell me about the first poem you wrote.
1: I was. So who goes first?
0: I want to hear about your first poem.
1: Okay. You know, what I remember was having this cool little notebook in the 90s. I remember that little notebook and not having a use for it. (laughs) And so I might have been, let's say, nine or ten maybe. Mm. And I have a lot of siblings, A lot of of people in my family, not a lot of privacy going on. And I do remember being angry and upset and wanting to kind of pour my heart out into this notebook, but not really wanting little brothers or big sisters or mom to open it and Read. Mm. And so, as a form of personal privacy, I started to pour out my anger and my despair in ways that I thought were coded, not necessarily making a code, but trying to speak almost in riddles to myself. And that is genuinely how it started. And I filled that notebook up because I had a lot of (laughs) repressed anger (laughs) as a small girl as I think a lot of us do. So yeah, that was how the impulse was sort of met. And it, it definitely came from a place of not not a happy emotion.
0: That is really amazing. What are the odds that this book still exists in your mother's home? Zero. No.
1: Yeah, as a as a preteen, I think I ditched it. Um <laughs> it's for the best.
0: I do love that In early childhood, a poem, rhyming and riddles aren't such a big leap from another. Yeah. I could totally understand how the two come together. And sometimes I read a poem now as an adult and I'm like, is this a riddle? Am I supposed to like decode this?
1: Yeah. And I don't love that feeling, to be honest, in poetry, but I did not think of them as poems at the time and then when i started really writing poetry consciously as more of like a a teenager that's when i thought about that notebook and thought about the fact that to code my experiences i was writing my impressions and like images instead of what happened i would just write like something about green eyes with a look of anger in them and tears rolling down your cheek or something like that to describe like a fight that I had with my brother. And I remember picking those images out of my experiences and cataloging them and writing them in language that now I see as being descriptive or even metaphorical. But at the time was just so nobody knew what I was talking about. (laughs) So it was a way of actually pushing people out, which is sort of sad.
0: Yeah. You know, like I think a lot of people with siblings can totally understand the like, I mean, especially in your household with all those kids and all of those guests, it was a busy and it was full household. Yeah. You know, you created privacy where you could. That's true.
1: Instead of thinking about pushing people out, I think it's better to see that I was creating a little safe space for myself to engage with language and my thoughts and my feelings. And if engaging with language, thought and feeling when your emotions are high, isn't writing poetry or isn't the primal urge to write poetry, I don't really know what is. So it makes sense to me now. Yeah. Anyways.
0: Oh, my personal, my beginnings in poetry came from a very different place, um, which was that in my day to day, I think I felt really lonely and really Mm -hmm. unseen and unheard and disconnected. And so my first poem was, you know, like, didn't know I was gay then, but now <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm aware. But I would write love poems to my third grade teacher. And it started Aww. because it was like teacher appreciation day and I didn't have anything to give. And I was hmm. really sad that I didn't have you know, a gift card or gifts to give to my teacher. And I wrote a poem and it, it was so bad. It started roses are red, violets are blue. And then I'm sure it was one more line Mm -hmm. and she loved it. And I just kept writing Mm -hmm. these really bad rhyming poems. And I ran into her. I won't say her name, but I ran into my teacher Again, when I was 18, the summer before I went off to school and she was like, what are you majoring in? I was like, writing. At the time it was poetry. And she's Mm -hmm. like, oh, I always knew you'd be a writer. (laughs) Oh, you gotta love those teachers. But yeah, there was this desire for making someone love me and for also just the love of the singy songiness of the poems that I knew mm-hmm. back then, which I can't anymore, please. Please do <laughs> rhyme.
1: But oh, that's so sweet, though, <laughs> that it was born from a desire to make a connection with another person. And really, it sounds like your first impulse to write poetry was to write love poetry, which is just so tender and wonderful. So sweet. And God bless the teacher who, <laughs> with earnestness, Tells their student, however old they are, that what they wrote is good. I think that that kind of validation from a teacher when you've written something creative is what makes most of us into writers. Mm. You know, whether that happens when you're a little kid or even in college, when you have that one professor who is just like, this is really good. Um, just that validation can be what gives us permission or makes us feel like we have permission, or that this belongs to us now and isn't just something we're trying to squeeze ourselves into.
0: Invaluable, those teachers. I'm glad you had her. Yeah. If you're a teacher and you're listening, <laughs> you're doing a good job. Um, she was also like really beautiful. And oh, I think- Oh yeah, <laughs> that helps. I think I had a crush. You're You're a love poet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a love poet. Well, what more is there to say? What more? Let's see. There's so much to say. I will say on the topic of
1: love poetry, that's one of the most primal poetic landscapes that there is, is the love poem. And that primal desire is is like no other. So um I think you were I think you were keyed into that sense of urgency from the beginning. Mm-hmm. So I think this is all making sense. And hopefully if you're listening, you are invigorated by some of these thoughts. And if you are so excited that you'd like to read some poems, I want to just shout out a few poets that we both love um, that people can look into if you haven't already uh, to get into some primal poetry and then we're going to talk about two specific poets that we brought for the conversation today. So yes. Chika Sagawa is a primal poet in my mind. Anar and I both love her. We've talked about her on the podcast before. Anyone else you want to shout out?
0: I already said Clarice Specter earlier. Agua Viva. Um, yeah, that is a, definitely a, a writer. You mm-hmm. know, she wrote novels, novellas, crónicas, but she's got a poetic flow and really does capture that just like wild energy. Hmm.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, speaking of wild energy, if people haven't read Lorca, Federico Garcia Lorca is the poet to read who you can easily find. And wow, that work will it's like you're like a little toy boat on a on a raging river of poetry and you just get swept away. It's really intense, really queer and great.
0: So many of the people that we brought to the podcast, I think, would fall into this category. Totally. Because it's just what we love. And, and yeah, the surrealists and the Dadaists. And I'm thinking about how is it now that I can channel this version of myself without you know, drugs and alcohol, like trying to keep it, <laughs> yeah, keep my body safe, but witnessing this energy in others. So I went to go see some live jazz recently mm-hmm. and the saxophonist really just transcended time and space and was in a flow. And it was just one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. Um, and then just kind of like, <laughs> don't judge me, but this is something that people have done which is making strange sounds and just letting the sounds that you want to come out of your body (laughs) and another way which none of you want to hear this but I'm gonna say it exercise (laughs) it really jostles the locked energy that wants to come out and there's nothing like getting a really great workout in and then just like Feeling like an animal. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Connecting to your body in general yes. is, you know, however you choose to do that is a way, definitely a way to like access some of that primal energy. Like you said, in a responsible way that's not going to also be self
0: destructive, ideally. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. And speaking of the sounds, A, I think that's like a therapy tactic uh, for a lot of people to like express latent emotions in their body, e- even anger. But also, I think if you're specifically like, okay, I need to access this primalness in my poems, working from the sound level up is a way to do that for sure. And to let the associative leaps happen on a sonic level first could be a really cool thing to play with.
0: Yeah. If you study surrealists and the Dadaists and the avant garde movement, artists you're going to come across some of those methods one of them being automatic writing yeah which you know the more you do it the more unhinged or unhindered you become and I think that's that's always a really fun style to explore when you're looking for the animal in people
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah well Anar Who did you bring to talk about
0: today? Who's your primal poet? Oh, my gosh. So excited to bring Amé Césaire. Today, I had borrowed a copy of Solar Throat Slashed from Claire that I held on to for maybe two years, and she recently received it back. And I got my own copy. Thank you to our local bookstore, Alienated Majesty. It was really great to see it there. I've never seen that out in a
1: bookstore before. I had to get my copy online. So that was really cool to see.
0: Yeah, a surrealist writer of color from Martinique. And Amé Césaire was a poet, playwright, statesman, and cultural critic, and is best known as the co-creator of the concept Negritude. His books include Amé Césaire, The Collected Poetry, Notebook of a Return to the Native Land, and Discourse on Colonialism. And yeah, it was so difficult to pick a poem to bring. Um, Ami says there is a badass.
1: (laughs) I just feel like that Uh, soundbite needs to be out there.
0: The energy. So good. Mm -hmm. And I think I'm going to leave this book out on my desk so that I can really just tap into uh, this energy. It's part rage- Part urgency and like a hot love. It's 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 everything, it has everything. So I will be reading to you the poem Solid, page 49 from Solar Throat Slashed, translated and edited by A. James Arnold and Clayton Eshelman. Holy shit, they ensured the universe and everything weighs everything. The plumb line of gravity having been installed at the facile bottom of solidity. The uranium deposits, the garden statues, the perverse loves, the street that merely pretends to be fluid, the stream, don't mention it, whose trains heavier than my feet, there is nothing up to and including the sun that has not stopped its clouds forever fixed." Fixed is moreover the command that ceaselessly resounds from one end to the other along the entire front of this strange army of despair. The world is fixed. Stone is fixed. The immense false movement is fixed, and tell me about the ways of your little mad girl circumscribed by the world that circumscribes a river where each couple is summoned to bathe twice and from where, moreover, the true cows of the debacle with its ranch of hooks and roots shall never rush forth. I am a stone covered by ruins. I am an island falcon hooded by guano. I'm a pyramid planted by a dynasty vanished from all memory, a herd of elephants, a mosquito bite, a small city aggrandized by crime, unless it be the war in the Pacific or the Atlantic Charter. There are those who claim they can reconstruct a man from his smile. That's why I'm careful not to let my dental impression be molded in the putty of the air. Face of man... You shall not budge. You are caught in the ferocious coordinates of my wrinkles. Hmm. I love that last line. It's what sold me to share this. It, It just moves. Yeah, could you read that last line again, please? Face of man, you shall not budge. You are caught in the ferocious coordinates of my wrinkles. Hmm. There were
1: several forms, I think, of list in this poem, and I think that's a very simple, poetic device that can actually be used to access this energy. And I love the way he uses lists in the poem to kind of paint a quick sketch of his impressions, Mm. internal and external, and Then there's the list of the I am statements, and that was a pretty wild one.
0: Yeah. I am a stone covered by ruins. I'm an island falcon hooded by guano. I'm a pyramid planted by a dynasty, vanished from all memory. A herd of elephants, a mosquito bite, a small city aggrandized by crime, unless it be a war in the Pacific or Atlantic charter. Hmm.
1: I think there are a lot of like political and racial depths to a lot of the items in that list, but the aggregation of the list itself and the idea of the self being all of these different refracted things, I feel like is a really interesting way to think about the primal and that the self is not a fixed thing. It's actually something that's a little more pliable and moldable and changeable and is a lot of things, but can also become a lot of things is an idea that I love in this poem.
0: (sighs) I just want to like <laughs> drink up this whole book.
1: <laughs> yeah. And the title, Solar Throat Slashed, is a great title. Thank God. You kind of know what you're in for when you read that title.
0: But yes, thank you so much for introducing me to Amis um, Cesare, Claire. Um, massive gift.
1: Oh, yeah. He's a wonderful example of people in the surrealist movement who didn't get talked about enough and was also a politician in Martinique. And he and his wife, Suzanne Césaire, were really active in the cultural and artistic movements taking place in their time. So a really amazing literary and political power couple to to research if you are a nerd. (laughs)
0: Which, if you've made it this far, we're going to spoil it for you. You're a nerd. Claire, what do you come to the podcast with today to read? Well, I'm taking us
1: down a very different road. This book is Alphabet in the Park by the poet Adelia Prado. She is a Brazilian poet, 87 years old, still going. I saw that some journal published a new poem of hers a couple years ago. So hopefully that means she's still writing, which I love Uh. that thought of an 87-year-old Adelia Prado still writing. Um, She's a different poet, though. Uh, I'm a I think we are immediately tapped into that primal quality in his work and that it's visible on the page. Adelia Prado writes these poems that look on the surface to be pretty standard, um, at least in this book. And her subject matter includes a lot of poetry about family, a lot about her childhood, a a lot about her Christian faith of all things, uh, not exactly what i would normally connect to the primal (laughs) and yet what i love about her work is that it has that raw urgency to it and it is so chock full of desire that it's almost embarrassing to read sometimes (laughs) you know what i mean when you're just like oh my god i'm seeing too far into this person's depths
0: (laughs) (laughs) just a little cringe Uh, um
1: but i love it i love it too and i love that she can be a a domestic poet and she can be and yet it just goes to show that that energy and that urge can be present in all all types of poetry i think Mm
0: -hmm.
1: so shall i read this to you yes please (sighs) okay i'm gonna read the titular poem titled the alphabet in the park i know how to write i write letters shopping lists School compositions about the lovely walk to grandmother's farm, which never existed because she was poor as Job. But I write inexplicable things, too. I want to be happy. That's yellow. And I'm not. That's pain. Get away from me, sadness. Stammering bell. People saying between sobs. I can't take it anymore. I live on something called the terrestrial globe, where we cry more than the volume of waters called the sea, which is where each river carries its batch of tears. People go hungry here, hate each other. People are happy here, surrounded by miraculous inventions. Imagine a certain Ferris wheel whose ride makes you dizzy. Lights, music, lovers in ecstasy. It's terrific. On one side, the boys. On the other, the girls. Me, crazy to get married and sleep with my husband in our little bedroom in an old house with a wood floor. There's no way not to think about death among so much deliciousness and want to be eternal. I'm happy and I'm sad, half and half. You take everything too seriously, said mother. Go for a walk, enjoy yourself, take in a movie. Mother doesn't realize that movies are like grandfather said, just people going by. If you've seen one, you've seen them all. Excuse the expression, but I want to fall in life. I want to stay in the park. The singer's voice sweetening the afternoon. So I write, afternoon, not the word, the thing.
0: Oh my gosh, I love this poem so much.
1: (laughs) It's really good.
0: I want to be happy, that's yellow, and I'm not, that's pain. Is just, it really stuck out to me the first time I read this. Um,
1: yeah and I love I love the way the poem it seems almost quiet in 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 the way it's written but it really jerks you back and forth between that happiness and that despair and then her conclusion is I'm happy and I'm sad half and half okay let's just leave it at that mm-hmm. mom says to go see a movie grandpa says all movies are the same but she just wants to stay in the park I think she just wants to stay In the moment of being half happy and half sad and just kind of letting it course through her. And I, of course, just love those final lines. So I write afternoon, not the word, the thing. Uh, It's like cheating in a way that I love where (laughs) it's like I'm going to write the word afternoon and that could be the whole poem.
0: Wow. Yeah, I think there's a lot of layers. We don't even have time to discuss this, but I'm, I'm also curious about, you know, there's the primal writing, there's that energy, and then there's the shaping of the poem. Maybe this can be another episode about revision and about editing, where it's like, you want to stay true to that initial energy and instinct and desire and impulse, um, But you also have to make it coherent (laughs) and well, you don't have to, but you might hope to make it coherent. Yeah. Um, And you can have both later this season. Claire will tell us how (laughs) (laughs) Oh, uh, I wish. You
1: know, I do feel like that's what I find so mesmerizing about Adelia Prado is so coherent so willing to make little self-deprecating jokes Mm -hmm. and just write about the mundane. And yet I feel such a powerful sense of emotion in her work. And yeah, I do think that there's a way, there's a way to do both. So may we all aspire to that.
0: Okay. On that note. So in the future, I want to have that conversation, Claire. Let's let's do it. <laughs> um coming up later this season, we will be interviewing one of the most explosive poets I think that we've had the honor to publish. Yes. M. Mick Powell. Um, if you haven't ordered Mick's book through our website hostpublications.com, now is the time to do it. You'll get a cool pencil and a postcard. Um And we will be celebrating our book launch October 21st via YouTube live. So
1: yeah, Mick is a very primal poet in their own right. So definitely recommend Threesome in the Last Toyota Celica and Other Circus Tricks. Available now on our website if you really want to dig into some primal stuff.
0: Perfect. Well, I really really can't wait for that conversation and all of our wonderful conversations to come thank you so much for putting together this episode claire
1: thank you for going along this wild ride with me Anar. it was so fun and listeners get out there
0: be wild yeah go nuts <laughs> but with respect and taste <laughs> and thank you for listening bye-bye